and you're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library Podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. I'm Jeff Milo, and joining me on the podcast today is Angeline Bully, author of Firekeeper's Daughter, a sensational, breakthrough, groundbreaking, super buzzed about book, debut author, Angeline Bully. This is an excellent YA novel. It's already on Reese's Book Club, and it was already picked up by the Obama's Higher Ground production to be adapted eventually into a Netflix series. So you have to pick up this book because everyone is talking about it. Now it tells the story of Donis Fontaine, 18 year old up in Sault Ste. Marie, as a biracial unenrolled tribal member and the product of scandal. Donis has never quite fit in, both in her hometown and on the nearby Ojibwe reservation. She dreams of studying medicine, she's very into science, but when her family is struck by tragedy, she puts her future on hold to care for her fragile mother. The only bright spot is meeting this young boy in her class of her same age, Jamie, charming new recruit on her brother Levi's hockey team. And as Donis falls for Jamie, certain details aren't really adding up and she senses this, this dashing hockey star is hiding something and it turns out he very much is. And everything comes to light when Donis witnesses a shocking murder and it thrusts her into the heart of a criminal investigation. She agrees to go undercover, but she secretly pursues her own investigation, tracking down the criminals with her knowledge of chemistry and traditional medicine. This is a book that beautifully describes the Ojibwe community. It is also a coming of age story. It also has the classic page turner energy of a great Nancy Drew mystery. And there is also elements of romance and tragedy. There is so much going on here. Angeline herself is an enrolled member of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, a storyteller writing about her Ojibwe community in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. She is a former director of the Office of Indian Education at the U.S. Department of Education. She lives in southwest Michigan, but her home will always be on Sugar Island. We talk about all of that. It's an incredible book, and I'm very excited to have Angeline Bully on the podcast. Here's our chat. People, I think, have been especially responding to this book's protagonist, Donis. Words I use to describe her, loyal, reverent, considerate, empathetic, studious, which anyone hearing me say that to describe the protagonist of a YA novel, ostensibly a Gen Z teen, would maybe be incredulous that an 18-year-old could exhibit such qualities. But that illuminates one of the many ways in which this story completely breaks free from the mold of the status quo, because you have crafted such a real, full, believable relatable character. Can you tell us about Donis, about writing her? Thank you. Well, at first she started out as me (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, a lot of similarities. And then I guess at a certain point she became distinct from me and started making choices that I hadn't set out to. And I would think the scene would be going one way Mm -hmm. and it just felt like she was saying, no, this is what I would do. I wouldn't react the way you would react. I'm going to react the way I react. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of trusting mm-hmm. that this character was so real to me that she could be separate from me mm-hmm. and to trust in that. Yeah. Well, I I kind of reductively described her as Gen Z because clearly this is a book in 2021 where we are reading about a teenager. But that sets aside the fact that this character has in a way been living in your head. The story's been living in your head for decades. So she's been, she's been evolving 
in your head. Yes. Well, it's it took me 10 years to write the story. And so that many years, uh, that many complete uh, page one rewrites, mm-hmm. uh, different versions. You know, there's the version where early on where she was perfect, um, made every right decision. And quite frankly, she was boring. And, <laughs> and then there are, are drafts that I have where she is very disturbed and really makes some choices that in the end I couldn't really justify. Mm-hmm. And and so I think after 10 years and writing and rewriting and getting feedback, I I'm really happy with who she is at the, you know, in the in the final version. Absolutely. She feels of this moment. I use the word reverent and there's a, a beautiful scene where I'll tiptoe around any spoilers, but there's a, a traditional funeral at the end of the first act of the book. Uh, there's a big moment. And you right. write you write beautifully about the ceremony of keeping the fire. And you are writing from direct familial knowledge there. It's just one of the instances in which you immerse a reader of this book into Donis's community and her family and even community members who are like family to her. Uh, she she walks, lives, breathes with a full appreciation of the gravity of how important all of this is to her. Talk about acquainting a reader with the beauty of this community. Oh, uh, that's a great question. And my father is a firekeeper. And in our Ojibwe community, that means, you know, a person that has been taught to strike the fire uh, and ceremonial fires are different than regular campfires. And so just wanting to share the beauty of things about us that I felt I could share. There's other ceremony that I I do not dive into. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my dad taught me a lot and the firekeepers, they tell stories as they tend to the fire. And that's where a lot of teachings come in. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was a beautiful thing to show that, that grief, you know, and the tragedy of losing someone and that our culture has this beautiful way of sending them off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I use the word illuminating. This book can be so eye-opening and exceedingly endearing for readers to learn more about the Ojibwe, their experience, their history, and even illuminating for the life in the Upper Peninsula. Uh, But more than that, Mm -hmm. this is is a damn fine procedural, a mystery, a reminiscent (laughs) vibe of uh, Nancy Drew. So it is all of that. So setting aside all of that illumination, uh, can you talk about what it was like to craft a mystery and that that side of your literary talents? What what influenced that? Because it's a page turner, you know? really the mystery came first yeah and and then really the coming of age and the identity uh grief and uh justice Mm -hmm. those themes came in later but initially it was you know just this mystery thriller in high school a very long time ago uh, one of my friends went to a different high school Mm -hmm. and told me about a new guy in our you know senior year and he did not play sports and he hung out with the stoners. And that wasn't, you know, what I was into in high school. I was very much a um, jock. And so I ended up n- not meeting him. And at the end of the school year, she said that this new guy had, there had been a drug bust and it turned out that he was an undercover officer. And I remembered thinking at 18 years old, what if we had met? What if our paths had crossed? And what if we liked each other? And then this spark of an idea was just, what if it wasn't that he liked me, but that he needed my help? Mm -hmm. And so 
even though I didn't start writing until I was 44, from 18 to 44, mm -hmm. that idea was all answering that question of why would an undercover investigation need the help of an ordinary Ojibwe girl? Mm -hmm. And just working through that question in my mind over those years, I was creating this mystery, although I hadn't you know, it would be many years before I sat down and actually wrote it. Mm -hmm. And by then I knew it was a deeper story about claiming your identity yes. and place in the community, yes. which made it firmly in the YA lane. Mm -hmm. And and I knew that it would have all these layers and that it would be hard for me to identify genre mm -hmm. um, because it didn't quite fit. It fit in many things and yet nothing uh, completely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, it's not too much of a spoiler here. Donis is uh, going to begin uh, sh sort of in the beginning parts of the book. She's going to become helping in this FBI investigation, initially looking into the prevalence of methamphetamine in the community. Mm -hmm. But there are great conversations that are started by how Donis doesn't just get to revel in that secret squirrel heroic detective work. <laughs> But she is also keeping a bit of a side eye on the motivations of the FBI, protective of her community at the same time. When uh, did you know she'd be walking that fine line? And what inspired that as a key component of the story? Well, <laughs> I'm an Ojibwe woman, mm -hmm. and I'm well aware of our history with federal agencies. Mm -hmm. And so I always knew that she would be helping the investigation, but that she would be, as you said, keeping an eye on it and realizing that there wasn't just one investigation going on. There were two, mm -hmm. theirs and hers. And her realizing that, I think I do an analogy there where she says, you know, if this drug problem was a person, mm -hmm. the FBI would come in, bandage the wound and leave. And she was the only one who was thinking about the whole person and what's going to happen to my community when this investigation is done, you know, to the FBI, it's their job. But to me, it's my life. It's my community. And I think that really I was I thought that was a good way to show readers maybe who aren't familiar with tribal communities of how you, you know, the distrust mm -hmm. and but yet wanting to wanting to find out who's behind these you know deadly drugs that are flooding her community yeah so yeah it was it was a bit of a, a balancing act and i hope that i conveyed that that difference of perspective the my next question the key word i was going to use was balance what resonates with me and i think what was resonating with all these readers is that there's so much of a beautiful balance going on and all these complex relationships all these complex characters you have the mystery plot and then you have this beautiful portrait of this community so there is the writing's all about balance and i and i talked about how this book is uh an education your role in the federal government was educating uh maybe just talk a little bit about that since that obviously preceded the release of this book but Talk specifically about balancing the aspects of this book where a reader is learning so much about the Ojibwe people, their language, even specifically about giving them that uh, that page turner mystery energy. So there's all that. So if you did say that it took 10 years, I believe it because there's a lot going on. <laughs> right. Just the, yeah, the layers. And I would wake up and I would, would have a character revelation uh -huh. and 
you know, so it, it's kind of like a, a painting mm-hmm. that is so layered and you think, oh, it's done. Mm-hmm. But wait, there's, you know, you like add in another touch of something and it and then you feel like it's complete. And then, but wait, so there's something else. So my experience, I, I've always worked in Indian education. So, you know, my first job was working in a tribal community that wasn't mine. Mm-hmm. And I I worked as an advocate in the school, in the public school, and I had, you know, uh, seventh and eighth grade students, and I would advocate for them and their families and was like a liaison with the tribe in the public school system. Mm -hmm. And it really opened my eyes to the ways that our public school system fails Mm -hmm. Native students. I really felt passionately about wanting to make a difference you know, and then eventually being in Washington, D.C. at the, you know, U.S. Department of Education. Mm-hmm. And there I had to strike a balance because it's about building relationships and it's about bringing people along. And so, you know, maybe program attorneys who are set in a certain view. And for example, there was a new proposal that that they wanted to do and it would be requiring tribes to have a internet portal mm-hmm. for parents to sign students up for you know certain activities and i said getting internet coverage you know broadband coverage on indian reservations is a struggle right. and then when you look at navajo nation i believe it's 20% of Navajo Nation households, it's not Mm -hmm. that they don't have internet, they don't Mm -hmm. have electricity. Mm -hmm. And so bringing that reality to policymakers, that that was, that was where I saw my role of advocating for tribal communities, and working with the federal agency to help bridge that, Mm -hmm. that divide. Right on. If my if I have my final question, I have to wrap up with it is utterly exciting that none other than the Obamas have picked this for the Netflix adaptation. That's got to be thrilling. But I have to say it is a credit to all the work that you put in, Angeline. Oh, these characters are so rich from her mother to her brother to this. Uh, it's not a spoiler because it's inside the inside flat. But the student who is revealed to be uh, uh, working undercover in the high school, it's there are literal fireworks on the page when uh, there's her relationship with this student before she finds out his secret and after. It's so complex. And then there's also this offsetting tragedy that happens. I just see complete cinematic fireworks going on here. So I, I think it's perfect for adaptation. How, I mean, you've had some time to process it, but how are you feeling about that? It's still surreal yeah. that, you know, higher ground productions and the, you know, the Obamas that they have read my manuscript that they, you know, saw the story potential, uh, bringing it to the screen and having clear thoughts about bringing it to the screen as a series, mm-hmm. because they loved all the different characters, the elders, and being able to delve into this community and really, uh, rather than with a film where you have to edit a 500-page book down mm-hmm. to, you know, a 90-page script, mm-hmm. and it it's surreal. And I'm just thrilled because they shared my core belief of having Native representation not just in front of the camera, mm-hmm. but behind the camera in the writer's room. And... I was really glad that I didn't have to lead them there. Yeah, That was one of the reasons why I was so excited about having them as my partners in this series, you know, the series. Oh, and yeah. Then 
Yeah. I, yeah. Ugh. There's no way. There's no way this could just be a 90 minute movie. Well, the compliment I'll give you, and this is sort of something people generally say about books, is when I was reading it, this was a kind of book that I just didn't want to end because I, I wanted to live in it. And one last thing I'll say, since since we're based here in Michigan with this podcast, it's great to see a book featuring Michigan. It, it usually when you were talking about popular contemporary literature. If you have a book set in Michigan, it's usually Detroit because that's the easy in. We're up in the UP. We're up in Sault Ste. Marie. We're talking about hockey. It's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I loved that. And and that's a whole thing because uh, that whole area, Sugar Island, all that is very important to you. Yes, that's where my dad's family is from. And I own the uh, family property uh, on Sugar Island. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's my favorite place in the world. Yeah, you did a beautiful job of bringing that part of Michigan to life. And it's it's a radiant book with a great mystery and a great, as I said, as at the beginning, a great protagonist. So excited for the adaptation and cannot thank you enough for joining us on this podcast. Thank you. Miigwech. Thank you so much. And that was our chat with Angeline Boley talking about Firekeeper's Daughter, her debut. I'll just quote a New York Times review from Courtney Summers. The protagonist of this book, Donis Fontaine, is a force to be reckoned with. And so is Angeline Boley. This is one bold, uncompromising, and elegantly crafted debut. And I can't put it much better than that. So great to have Angeline Boley on the podcast. We're going to have more information about her in the show notes, of course. You have been listening too Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and the music that you hear coming in and out of this podcast is by local musician Chad Stocker. If you enjoyed this chat, please share it to social media or just tell a friend about this podcast. And if you've been listening to us for a while already, remember to rate, review, and subscribe, or leave a comment because that would help us find new listeners. And we thank you for listening to this episode.